podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. All right, well, we're in week 11 of our Ephesians series, and uh, we've got one more week to go before we wrap this up. But this has been an incredible journey, and I know even as much as we've tried to kind of drill deep on a couple of these verses here, a couple sections, uh, we're skimming the surface at best. I mean, this is obviously, with, as with, uh, you know, the rest of the Word of God, um, th- we could spend a lot of time talking about this. We could kind of say, okay, what about this verse, and what about this, and how does it connect, and all of this stuff. But uh, what I want you to see as we're racing to a close here at the, of this book of Ephesians, is to see this, this story that Paul is trying to get us to catch, the story of God's salvation. And he begins in Ephesians 1 saying, Look, here is Jesus who's going to one day bring all things in heaven and earth, bring them together under him. And it has echoes in it of what Peter said in Acts 3.21 where he says, Look, Messiah is waiting in heaven to come again for the, when the time comes for the restoration of all things. The good news is better than you thought. Because in, in, in some way, or some version of this, we've all grown up with kind of hearing that, okay, well, you were a bad boy or you were a bad girl, and then Jesus came and died on the cross, and so now God's not mad at you. And now that's great. That's wonderful. Woohoo! But the story is actually much larger than that. That God saw his good world, the world that Yahweh, the creator God, made. God saw his good world. He saw the human beings that he put in charge of it to steward it, to tend it, to reflect his image back into it. He saw them instead lead the rebellion and lead this revolt and infect this world with evil. And he saw everything begin to come out of kilter, off kilter. And what he says is, look, I am coming to set this right. And God's plan is not just to bring our hearts and our souls back to him, but to set everything back to him. It's been said that there's a lot of Isaiah in Ephesians. And in fact, if you are, uh, you know, if you love the book of Isaiah and if you've read it or, you, you know, you've studied it or whatever, you'd recognize some of these phrases. Because the visions that Isaiah had of Messiah was of one who would come, Isaiah 2, to, to lead them to end war, to beat their spears into pruning hooks and plowshares. He had this vision of Messiah who would come, who would set things right, that even the animals would begin to live at peace with one another. The wolf and the lamb lie down together, he says. And so there's this thing, you could say in a nutshell, Isaiah's picture of Messiah was God coming to act to set it all right. And Paul wants to tell us that, look, it's already begun. That because Jesus Christ has come, because he died, because he's been risen, that this massive story, saving story of God is already reaching the crescendo. And so when they said in the New Testament, when they said we're living in the last days, they weren't sort of implying, oh man, this is going to be scary stuff and, you know, we might be raptured. What they were thinking about was they were saying that, look, we've been living this story. We've been steeped in Isaiah language. We've been waiting for the moment that God would come and set it right. And to, to say we're in the last days is saying that everything up until this point has been building to this crescendo. And look... We're in the final overture of the song. 
That's what they meant. So for them to say, look, this is unfolding, this has begun, they're saying this is really, really good news. And in in Ephesians 2, he starts to tell us then, okay, look, it's by grace that you have been saved. And he's telling us how we got included in on this. Ephesians 3, he begins to tell us Gentiles, maybe the majority of us here tonight, to say, look, this is how you got in on the people of God story. This maybe means maybe less to us because we're kind of removed from this. But for Paul's listeners, this was a big deal. To say to them, you've heard the story of Israel's God. And you've heard the prophecies. and You've maybe interacted with Jewish believers. But look, here's the thing. You are now in on it. And if there's a way of thinking about it this way, think of it as Genesis 3 describing the fall of man and the the messed upness of our sin and our heart. We know about that. We've heard about that, you know, from good people and angry preachers. We've heard about that. But then there's Genesis 11, which is this fracturing of humanity. It's, It's many nations, many languages all of a sudden happen. The disintegration of the human race. What about that problem? And what Paul means to tell us is, in Ephesians 2, he's saying, look, Messiah has come to set right the sin problem. But in Ephesians 3, he says, Messiah has also come to set right the fracturing problem. That's why there's all this language in Ephesians 3 about, look, there is one new humanity. Now, that sounds like a weird line out of a strange sci-fi futuristic movie. You know, we are the new humanity. You know, what are we, cyborgs or something, you know? No, the point is this, that when you are in Christ, all of a sudden, all our other markers and identifiers and distinguishing elements, all of those all of a sudden begin to fall to the wayside. That when you are in Christ, all of a sudden it doesn't matter as much what your ethnic identity is or what your national identity is or what your gender identity, all of those things sort of become less important because you are now in Christ. You're part of the great family of God. And Paul's saying all this, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And a lot of it, I mean, you may have felt the first part of the series, you may have felt like, gee, I can't wrap my head around that. What does all this mean? And why is he telling us all this stuff? He's telling us all this stuff so that when he begins to give us these so-called ethical instructions in Ephesians 4 and 5 and parts of Ephesians 6. It's, it's so that we can have that as the backdrop. Because we have a confusing way of thinking about this stuff sometimes, particularly in the Western church, where we're really hung up on words like acceptance and rejection. And we're really hung up on ideas of, well, am I loved because of what I do? Or am I loved because of who I am? And, you know, and we're just torn about it. And we're just longing for someone just to say, look... All you need to know is God loves you. So thank you. So I can ignore all the other stuff I've ever heard growing up. And Paul puts it together for us in Ephesians 4 verse 1 when he says, Therefore as dearly loved children of God become imitators of God. Walk worthy of your calling. And we talked a few weeks ago how that word worthy is this word axios. It means it's balancing scale is the image. Let your calling, which has so much weight, be balanced, be of equal weight. Let your walk be of equal weight to your calling. And I told you how my my son is nine months old and his favorite method of movement is rolling around, you know. And that's cute and ooh and oh and, you know, at nine months old, that's awesome. At nine years old, that'd be a problem, you know. (laughs) 
See you, Dad. I'm going to wait for the school bus, you know. She said, that wouldn't be right. I intend to teach him to walk. I intend to teach him to imitate me and to imitate his mother. That's what we do as parents. And this is what Paul is saying. is Look, all of this stuff I'm about to launch into in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 must be heard in light of what we've just heard about our calling. It's because we've been adopted into this family that we can start to talk about imitating our father. It's because you've become a son or a daughter of God that now we can begin to talk about putting on humility and, and learning to, to have the same forgiveness be in us that was in Christ. Does that make sense? That it's not this disconnected thing. It's, it's not as if you come to church and you hear two messages. Well, God loves you. God loves you one week. And the next week there's a series on all the things you're doing wrong. You know? It's like, I don't know what to do with this. Ephesians is Paul's magnum opus in many ways because he's trying to put those things together for us. He's trying to say, look, since you've been brought in, since you are the people of God, since you're members of this family, this is how you live. You remember we've worked hard at saying this almost every other week of saying that the law, even for Israel, was the law how Israel became the chosen people of God? Yes or no? No. You're not sure. Some of, that's okay. They were chosen because God chose Abraham and God chose Abraham's family. Why? Because. And then... <laughs> And then Abraham's descendants find themselves as slaves in Egypt, and God rescues them out of Egypt. Why? Because they're his chosen family. No law yet, right? Just because. Choosing. Saving. Then he gives them law. And he gives them law not to say, here's what you've got to do if, you're going, if I'm going to save you. No, it was never that way. And I think we have this... You know, maybe because some of the Reformation teachers were so bent on making a particular point that they, they misunderstood the Old Testament in many ways. And so you and I have grown up hearing that the law is this awful thing. Well, the law was never given to Israel to make them God's people. It was always how they should live since they've become God's people. And the difference for us as the New Covenant people is that now because we're in Christ, we are God's people. And now because we have the Holy Spirit, we can live out, we can live as dearly loved children of God, imitating our Father. Does that make sense? So don't hear the word rules or instructions or teach. Don't hear that as, oh, well, I, I, I'm not under the law. No, no, listen. Every, first of all, every time Paul says law, he's not talking about rules. Don't read that as rules. Every time Paul says law in the Old Testament, make a little circle in your Bible and write in the margin, Mosaic law. Torah, Israel's law, not law in general. What are we saying? That God's lawless? That he has no ideas of rules, no preference for behavior? That's not what we're saying. And I think a confusion about this has, has, has gotten us to the point where we're willing to say, look, we're kids, we're in the family of God, woohoo! And we're like nine-year-olds rolling around the floor all day because we don't know that we're supposed to grow up. And this, this whole part of the second part of Ephesians is to say to us, grow up, grow up. Walk worthy of your calling. Let your walking be of equal weight to your calling. Does that make sense? That's what I want us to catch. I'm saying, I'm saying all this as a way of recap because here we are in the middle of Ephesians 6. And last week, we, we talked about how nobody really told us that there's an enemy. Nobody really, really told us that there's somebody who's bent on your destruction. But there is. 
There really is an enemy. We know about Jesus and God's plan of salvation and all this stuff. But there is a devil. There are spiritual forces of evil that are intent on taking us down. But last week, the thing that we zeroed in on was, look, what are we supposed to do? Go, go sort of ghostbuster chasing, you know? Like, let's go find demons and start doing all this weird stuff. No, 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 no. But what Paul tells us is simply to stand. Don't give up ground. And, and he's echoing what he had just told them in, in one of the earlier chapters where he says, don't give Satan a foothold. Don't, don't, let, him, don't let him have room. When, when you feel your pride getting offended, when you feel your feelings getting hurt, when you start to sense these things rising up in you, begin to confess it. Begin to make it right because not doing that is giving back ground that you've already gained. And that spiritual warfare is all of a sudden very, very ordinary. And it's the daily stuff that happens to us in our hearts. And so here we are today, tonight, talking about the armor of God. Now, I don't know how many of you, I know, you know a few of you at least grew up in Christian homes like I did, but um, when I was growing up and I would hear sermons about the armor of God, it was always sort of this emphasis on like, okay, so let's, you know, put on the helmet of salvation, you know. Okay, let's put on. The, and it's a great learning tool for young kids, you know, I'm like... Oh, I'm putting on my belt of truth, you know, putting on, lacing up my shoes of the gospel, you know, and it was just sort of this cool thing, you know, and, and as a kid, that was sort of fun, but somewhere along the way, I think I began to pay more attention to the equipment than to the ideas, you know, it was like the helmet, you know, this helmet, you know, and shield, what kind of shield is it, you know, is it like this kind of, you know, and started thinking about the, the stuff of the armor versus the point that Paul's really trying to make. And, and I, I hear sometimes, I overhear conversations where someone says, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I was deployed or I, I went here and I forgot to put on the armor of God, you know. Forgot to put on the armor. What, what is this? You know, like, forgot to brush your teeth, forgot to put on the breastplate of righteousness, you know. Like, do we need sticky notes in our house to say, like, brush your teeth, comb your hair, and oh, by the way, put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, you know. What? Is this something that if we forget to put on a certain part, it's like, oh, no. I got the breastplate, but I forgot the belt, and my spiritual pants were falling off all day. You know, like, what, what is this? You know? And it's, it's comical because here we are sidetrack, sidetracked by, like, these actions, which is cool. It's a great learning tool. It's fine. But at some point, we've got to say, what are these ideas that Paul's trying to convey? What's the point of him really saying these things. And so we go to our text tonight, Ephesians six thirteen through 17. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Now, by the way, if you like marking up your Bible, you've probably already done this, but you can look through Ephesians 6 and see the word stand. It occurs a number of times. Just circle it every time you see it, even in this few verses. So that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted for the ready, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I want to spend a little bit of time tonight talking to you just about each piece, but specifically about each idea there. And, and, and really, it would be wonderful to spend a week on each thing, but 
for the sake of time tonight, I'll have to sort of cruise through it a little bit and hopefully spur some thoughts for you. The belt of truth. There's two um, possible ideas that Paul could have been referring to when he said the belt of truth. Uh, One is we know that one of their favorite ways of naming the message of Jesus and who Jesus was is to call it the truth. That it's the truth about who Jesus is. It's the truth that Messiah has actually come. It's the truth that God is fulfilling his long-awaited promises. It's the truth of all of that that's beginning to unfold. It's that truth that sort of holds it all together. And I know we were laughing about spiritual pants falling down. Don't think about that too much. But, but just the idea of a belt being the thing that, that holds everything together, that ties the ensemble together, ties the armor together. And so here Paul's saying, look, let, let truth be that. The truth of who Jesus is. The truth of what he's come to bring. The truth of, of, of this message, this gospel that we proclaim. But it's also possible that Paul is referring to not just the truth, capital T, Jesus, the truth about Jesus, but that he could also be talking about let truthfulness be the belt. Let truthfulness be the thing that holds you together. And, and part of the reason for saying this is earlier in, in Ephesians 4 or 5, he's talking about their relationships with one another. And he says, look, put away falsehood. Let truthfulness begin to be on your lips. Let uh, fight, make every effort to keep the bo- unity through the bond of peace. And he's saying this stuff to say, look, let there be this truthfulness among yourselves. And think about how that might play out for us. Think about how uh, easy it is to sort of say, to hear something about another person and to say, yeah, oh, I bet that's true. And if it's not, then all of a sudden everything you believe about this other person kind of falls apart. Or think about how easy it is to say, well, I think this is true about God, and it's really not. It's not based on this. It's something you heard a preacher say on TV. Or whatever. Think about how easily truth, or we take things to be truth, and then it's not. And then all of a sudden, the thing that you put together begins to fall apart. And it's important to say, okay, look, if we're going to stand, I've got to let the truth of who Christ is and truthfulness with one another be this thing that kind of holds us all together. Let truth hold you together. The breastplate of righteousness. This is um, interesting, and there's a lot of discussion that we can have about this word that Paul uses for righteousness. But it has several overtones to it. Um, you know, the, the Old Testament that Paul and Jesus and these guys read was uh, the Septuagint. It's the Old Testament that's been translated into Greek. And so, uh, since they were writing in Greek, they would use certain words that had special um, significance because it had been used in the Old Testament translated into Greek. Does that make sense? Okay, so this word righteousness has a very particular um, story and back- backdrop to it. And it has implications of God being just and being righteous, but it also has this implications of God setting it Right. It's very closely connected with what the word that we use, the idea of justice, which is why when you talk about righteousness, we talk about justification a little bit. We say, you are in the right, Greg, you know, to be justified, you are in the right. And so this breastplate of righteousness has a bit of a a, a story that it's telling. It's saying to the world, look, your heart has been set right with God. And that your heart being set right with God is phase one of God's massive plan to set everything right. 
that that is God's righteousness to do that. Does that make sense? And think about a breastplate that is this visible piece. And so putting it on, say, I've clothed yourself, put, put on this breastplate of righteousness to remind yourself that because you're in Christ, you've received this verdict, this declaration that you are righteous, that you have been made in the right with God. But it also means that you being made right with God is the first step of everything else being made right with God. Now, how might that be helpful? Because what is the thing that gets us in our hearts, that gets us discouraged, that gets us being bitter, that gets us being angry, maybe at God? What is it that sort of attacks at that? It's when you see things in life that just aren't right. Isn't that true? When you see or you're the victim of an injustice or you feel, look, this, this, I have been wronged. Something has come against me. And it's very easy for all of a sudden for that to begin to spiral and to say, well, who knows if God cares? Who knows if God is doing anything about this? Who knows if God's going to intervene? Who knows if God knows my pain? Who knows if God cares about that situation or my friend that just went through that or my spouse that just went... Who knows if God cares about any of those things that are wrong with the world? And maybe Paul is saying, look, cover your heart with the fact that you have been set right with God. And know that the fact that you have been set right is a sign that all will one day be set right. Right. Does that make sense? Imagine if I told you for a moment, took you to a junkyard, you know, at some part of town and said, hey, look at this junkyard. Do you know this junkyard used to be a garden? And you're like, a garden? What were they growing there, you know? I mean, nothing. Look, look at this place. And you look at it now and it's covered with scrap metal and, and weeds and trash and it's just garbage. And what if I said to you, you know, this, this junkyard... This junkyard is actually one day going to be a garden again. Like, no, it's not. It's a junkyard. No, no, no. This ju- I, I, I bought this junkyard, and it's going to be a garden. You're like, there's no way it's going to be a garden. No, in fact, it's already becoming a garden. Where? Over there by the rotting Nissan? You know, like, what? No, no, this junkyard is already becoming a garden. How is it becoming a garden? And then I say, hey, look, look, look. Look over here. Do You see that little green shoot breaking through the dirt? Yeah? Is that a weed? No, no, no. <laughs> I planted that. that. That's, you know, I don't know, an orchid. <laughs> Something. I wish I knew more about gardening, you know. <laughs> now, I just planted that. that. You know, my wife planted a garden in our backyard uh, this summer. And I wasn't paying too much attention, but it's really cool. There's all these vegetable gardens. I, I say I wasn't paying too much attention. I, what I mean is... Don't jump all over me now. It's just that I don't really know what we, you know, I know there's like peppers and stuff like that. Anyway, so, so if I were to say, look, that little green shoot that's breaking through the dirt, that's a green pepper plant that, we, that I just planted. It's breaking through. And you're saying, really? Wait, wait, wait. here's another one. You see that green shoot? That, that's a red pepper plant, you know. It's breaking, really? Yeah, no, no, this whole thing's going to be a vegetable garden. This is a junkyard. No, no, no. It's going to be a vegetable garden. That is what Paul means when he says, look, you are a new creation. He's saying, look, don't you know 
that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 65, that one day God was going to make new heavens and new earth. Don't you know that one day this world that looks like a junkyard is going to be this beautiful garden like it first was when we called it Eden? And do you know how we know that? Because life has already begun to break through. So where? Where is life breaking through? And he says, in you, and in you, and in you. And all of us as believers, we are the signs of God's life breaking through the junkyard of the world. We're the signs of it. And that is what when we say, I'm wearing the breastplate of righteousness, I'm saying, look, I believe that my heart has been set right with God. And because my heart has been set right, that's a sign that all of this will be set right. So I'm not allowing bitterness into my heart. I'm not allowing discouragement into my heart. I'm not allowing resentment into my heart because I'm covering my heart with the righteousness, the fact that I've been set right, that you believe that because you have been set right with God, God will one day set the whole world right. That is massive. What if we could guard our heart with that? The readiness from the gospel of peace. As I mentioned to you, Paul spent, spends almost the whole entire chapter of Ephesians 3 talking about the peace that God has brought between Jew and Gentile. And he means for us to be messengers of this peace. He means that wherever we go, can we be messengers of this peace? Now, this is tricky because, you know, we talked a little bit last week about this tension between how, yeah, we believe that, the, you know, good and evil, there's, there's sort of all of that in all of us, but yet aren't there some systems and some regimes and some, you know, can't we point to something and say that that's evil? Okay, you can as long as you know that you're included in that. <laughs> and so here we are saying, look, we're called to be messengers of peace. Not only of peace between humanity and God, but that, that if we are in Christ, there's all of a sudden no more dividing wall. No more markers between Jew and Gentile and slave or free. There's no more markers of those things. They're gone. So to, to, to wrap your feet in this message of peace is to say that you're prepared to carry the message of God's peace wherever you go. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are what? The children of God. In other words, when you carry this message of peace, you're just like your dad. You're just like your father. You're just like this family that you've been part of. You want to know one of the things that marks this family of God? It's a peace. Not a cheap peace, not a yeah, peace, but you know, not like that. But a genuine relationships have begun to be set right. Think about that. Think about the situations you walk into at work. Can I be a messenger of peace? Can I be a person that carries the peace of God into that workplace? You know, when everybody's stressed out about a deadline or the busy season, can I be a, a carrier of peace, you know? What about when there's like everybody talking bad about a boss and there's like this rift between, you know, the third level of management and your level? You know, what, what if there's this rift and this, can I be a messenger of peace? Yeah. Of course, in a larger sense, what we are to be is the messenger of the gospel itself. The gospel of peace. That, look, we can have peace with God. But also, look, if you are in Christ, there's no more need to have these divisions. There's no more need to sort of say, 
you know what, my ethnic identity or my national identity or my all this stuff. I mean, look, I, I rejoice in the fact that, that a few months ago, and don't, please don't applaud. Every time I say this, you applaud, and I appreciate that. Please don't applaud. I rejoice in the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen. I, I, I really do. I, that's, that's, that's cool. That's great. It's, it's probably the greatest country right now. Awesome. I'm, I'm thankful for it. But I'm way more pumped about belonging to God's family. I'm way more excited about that. I'm way more excited that in two weeks from now when I go to encourage a church in Malaysia and teach at a conference there, that I can say that they're my family. I'm way more encouraged that when I sat with a family uh, from Switzerland who just brought their daughter to the school of I'm, yesterday, I'm, I'm way more encouraged that when I sat with them, I could say, we're family. I'm way more stoked about the fact that it doesn't matter what cultural identities we have. If we are in Christ, we're carriers of this message of peace. That's... that's more exciting than I took an oath, you know. It's a, hey, great, I love it. It's awesome. But can we for a minute lose our pride in national identity? Can I challenge that a bit? Can we remember that we're citizens of a bigger family, of a better people, and to carry that message wherever we go? How does that impact the way we think about which cultural group is evil and which cultural group is not evil? And what Christians should be opposing in America and what Christians should not be opposing. I mean, just think about that for a minute, okay? Let it mess with you. It should mess with you a little bit. Because what we're trying to say is, if you belong to the Messiah who means to one day end all war, how should you live now? Just think about it. What does it mean to carry this message of peace? The shield of faith. This word that's translated for faith in the New Testament can just as easily be translated as faithfulness. And so it's important not to make too much sometimes about saying, well, you know, faith, it's you know, believe, just believing, it's sort of empty believing. Um, but this idea, it, it's inseparable, faith, believing and the faithfulness of believing. The faithfulness uh, is closely, closely connected. And so here he says, take up the shield of faith. I think it's interesting that it's the only part of the armor that he specifically highlights is going to help you when you're under attack. Oh, there's fiery darts. Did you forget? <laughs> Maybe we were talking about peace so much you forgot that there's actually there's a spiritual war. There's fiery darts. And, and, and how are you, you going to stand against it? It's the shield of faith, of faithful believing, or in the words of Journey, if you love Journey, you know, don't stop. Oh, sorry. sorry, that was for, for you, Matthew. But just to keep the persistence of believing, of faithfulness, of saying, no, 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 I know, there, I know there's doubt, I know there's questions, and it's okay to wrestle with that, it's okay to say I don't understand, and it's okay to say I don't have the answers, and it's okay to say all that, but to hold up that shield of faith and say, but you know what, I will keep on faithfully believing in a faithful God, that we lift up the shield of faith, to keep faithfully believing in God's faithfulness. Helmet of salvation. These last two pieces, you know, we're told to put on these other pieces. These last two pieces, there, there, there might be something significant. And Paul's saying, look, for these you sort of receive. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit. And, and maybe the imagery he's working with, Paul's writing this from, as a prisoner. And maybe he's writing this or dictating this to Tychicus or whatever. And he's looking up and there's a Roman dude in an armor. And he's like, hmm, we've got an armor, you know. And when a Roman soldier was getting dressed and you put on your stuff... It's pretty hard to sort of bend down and pick up and put, you, know, you kind of have to take 
the helmet, put it on. Take the sword, okay? Here we go. I'm ready now, you know. And there's something about this, maybe, that the helmet of salvation is something that's given to us. You've heard me talk about how throughout Paul's letters, salvation is described as past tense, present tense, and future tense. It's all of it. It's God's massive plan. But specifically in Ephesians, he, he, he talks about salvation, focusing on the past tense aspect of it. Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved. Receive this. Remember that it's been given to you. Guard your mind against the thoughts of doubt that say, no, you're not. No, you're not. You don't belong in this. You, you, no, no, no. Look, I, I, I'm in. I, I'm part of the family. I, I'm in. I, I'm in Christ, and that's why I'm in. And to remember that. To guard your mind with the fact that Christ has saved you and made you part of his family. And then this last one, the sword of the Spirit. I love this. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And at first glance, it sort of seems, well, which is it? Is it the Spirit or is it the Word of God? Or maybe someone said, you know, someone suggested, oh, maybe it's the Spirit's sword, that the Spirit himself is wielding a sword and the sword that he's wielding is the Word of God. All fine, but unnecessary if we catch some of this language. The Greek word for spirit is simply the word pneuma. It's breath, breath. Now, what happens when I'm speaking I'm breathing. It's impossible to speak without breathing out a word, right? You can't speak without breathing out a word. And so for us, again, here's another thing that we've had, you know, these sort of debates about, well, we need, this church emphasizes the spirit. Well, this church emphasizes the word. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's all in the speaking of his word, there is the spirit. It's there. So this, again, another sort of false division. Well, this is the Spirit, and this is the Word. If there's a church where the Word is being read, the Spirit is also there. And be hesitant to proclaim, that church doesn't have the Spirit. Really? You're going to say that? Well, man, what they're doing, there's just no Spirit in that. Are you sure you want to say that? Because when the Word is uttered, there is the breath of God, the Spirit of God. In fact, Paul uses a version of that breathed word later in a letter to Timothy when he says, all Scripture is what? God breathed. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it's the utterance of God. It's the spoken Word of God. How has that become the weapon for us? How is that the only offensive weapon? We've got all this defensive armor and all, you know, the sword is our one thing for striking down. And what is it? It's speaking the word that was spoken to us. Speaking back the word that was spoken to us. There's a subtle but I think important difference in remembering that the Bible, God speaking to his people was not first written, that God speaking to his people was first spoken, something personal about me speaking to you. Do you know we have a God who is, who has spoken and who speaks, and he speaks these words back again to us when we open it, that this isn't just, well, this is a nice book and there's some good ideas and, you know, but that do you know that because the Spirit spoke it? That in the speaking of it, the Spirit came even. That when we read it, we say, God, speak it again to my heart. Oh, 
God as I read this word. That's why there's something powerful about reading the word of God out loud. Why? Because it's something, no, it's just the speaking of it. It's the, let this breath come in again to my heart and let it come out of me. Inhale, exhale, inhale, speak back the word that was spoken to me. Let the breath that, that filled these words fill me and then come out of me again. I, I'm sorry if I'm being too mystical tonight. I'm just trying to be poetic about this, this picture. But we're speaking back the word that was spoken to us. For years and years and years, for the majority of Christian uh, history, they didn't sit and read. They sat and read out loud to each other, or they sat and listened. Even when the printing press happened, there, weren't, there wasn't this mass proliferation so that there was a Bible in every home. That stuff didn't happen until pretty recently. These words were written to be heard. These words were written to be spoken, to be read, to be spoken and heard and heard and spoken. And so that in doing that, it becomes this weapon against the enemy. Think of Jesus facing the temptations. Every time he says back, it is written, it is written, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. When... I was uh, 10. We moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon. And it was my first um, experience into American sports and all that. Loved it. Became a basketball fan right away. And uh, it was during the late 80s when Jordan was starting to get really popular. And so I remember the first pair of Nike Air shoes I got. They weren't Jordans because we couldn't afford that. But we just got Nike Air, like the lowest Nike Air. And the Air was like this much, you know. But it was Nike Air. And, uh, and I was convinced that these Nike Air high tops were going to improve my game, you know, because this is what, this is what they wear, you know. And so anyway, there's something about us, though, that if somebody tells you that, like, this is the parka that's worn by people who hike Everest, you're like, that's the parka I got to get. I mean, never mind that you're walking from your parking lot to, you know, the overhang or, you know, not even. You pull into your covered garage, like... Man, I got to have that parka. I mean, that's what the dude wore when they hiked it. You know, it's like you don't need that parka, or or boots. Or, you know, if if we know that this is the gear that the pros use, we got to have it, right? Something that never occurred to me until recently is that the armor of God is not an armor that God gives; it's an armor that God wears. That the armor of God is actually God's armor. Isaiah. The reason I keep going back to Isaiah, by the way, is last year I had the chance to go to a, a Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit and discovered, many of you know this maybe, uh, that, that in the Qumran community, which is the community that copied the Old Testament and kept it and all this stuff, they, there were three Old Testament books that they had the most copies of. Deuteronomy, because it was the re- renewal of covenant. Psalms, because it was their prayer book. And Isaiah. Because it was their hope for salvation. The most copies of the Old Testament book, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah. If you're intimidated of the Old Testament, start there. Start with Deuteronomy and Psalms and then Isaiah. And I keep going back to find stuff in Isaiah that Paul is referencing because it would have been, it would have rung bells for them when they heard some of this. 
Isaiah 11, verse 3 through 5. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decides by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, here's that word again, with righteousness he will judge the needy. In other words, judge the needy. What do you, I thought the needy needed help. That, that idea, the idea, Isaiah's picture of judging is not like punishing, okay? Don't, don't, again, words not to hear the way we would hear them. Don't hear the word judging just as punishment. It, it is that for the wicked, But involved in God's judgment is also his bringing justice, bringing it out. And so here it is. It says, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath. There it is again, the breath, the new. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness will be his sash around his weight. And this is why I say, don't get so hung up on, well, is truth a belt or is it a a coat. That's missing the point. The point is more the things that we clothe ourselves with. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Isaiah 59, this was our Old Testament reading. He saw that there was no one. I mean, this is kind of like you could write a movie score underneath this, you know. And he saw that there was no one. One God decided to... Anyway, he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And so his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. There it is. And the helmet of salvation on his head, he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Isaiah has this picture of God saying, wait, wait, what's going on? Wait, nobody's going to act to do this. Wait, nobody's going to defend the poor. Wait, nobody, okay, all right, all right, I've had it. I am going to come and break in and wage war against all the enemies. That's awesome. And Paul, looking back at the cross, would say in Colossians that he triumphed over them in it. That here comes Jesus. Here's Isaiah seeing Messiah, though not fully understanding it. Jesus coming and saying on the cross, okay, the way that I wage war against evil is not in the way that you think. I'm going to do it by saying, bring it, bring it. Do your worst. Do your worst. Kill me. Let an evil empire Let a corrupt religious uh, rulers, let the sin of all humanity, let it all come on me. I'll take it. Bring it. The worst of all that is evil in the world, bring it. Because I know when you're done, God will raise you from the dead. And here comes Jesus bursting through the grave, victorious over it. This is God waging war against his enemies. But then you're like, okay, okay, well, that's cool, but that happened 2,000 years ago, and there's still stuff that's messed up in the world, right? Are you thinking that? Sure, now you are. So then some war he waged. John uses this phrase when he describes the cross. He says, Jesus said, it is finished. Later, in another book John would write he has this revelation of Jesus in Revelation 21 and Jesus says behold I am making all things new it is done wait I thought it was finished is it finished or is it done what is it 
Turns out they're two different words. The word that Jesus says on the cross is, it is complete. It has reached its completed end. I have brought this task, this mission that began to be unrolled through Abraham and Abraham's family and was carried on track through Israel. I have brought it to its completion at the cross. It is completed. And the word that Jesus says in Revelation 21 is, it is coming to There is this vision that John has. Revelations 19. It's a few verses long. Just bear with me. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. We heard this as our New Testament reading. Whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. And there's this picture of a majestic Jesus coming to actually make it come to pass. What of us in the meantime? What does it mean for us? It means that We are in Christ. And so that victory that was completed at the cross, which will one day fully come to pass when the returning risen Christ comes, that we are in Him now. That that, that authority is ours. That the armor of God is the armor that God Himself wears. That because Jesus warred against the devil at the cross and defeated Him in His resurrection, He will bring about His victory at His return. It means that his victory is our victory. It means that you and I aren't rogue warriors kind of saying, God saying, okay, hey, you're saved. Okay, great. By the way, there's a devil, but uh, let's see. Here's a helmet. Here's a breastplate. Here's a shield. Best of luck to you. See you at the end. But that's not the picture that he's saying, do you see Messiah, the victorious warrior of God? That he came and defeated the enemy at the cross and that one day he's actually going to come and, and, and act out the implications of that victory on the earth. And that in the meantime, we, the body of Messiah, are putting on his very armor. We're wearing what the pros wear. We're wearing the armor of God. I'm terrified of snow driving. And... Um, I, I do my best to brave it out, you know, when it's snowing. But what, I always, what always makes me feel good, Evan's laughing. I'll call you for a ride one day. What always makes me feel good is when I have new tires and I get to drive the four-wheel drive vehicle. Then I feel like, okay, I'm in my Xterra. It's got new tires. We can do this. Let's go, you know. I'll drive the whole, you know, whatever, 4.2 miles from my house to the church, you know. And I wonder if that's some kind of a weak, inadequate metaphor to help us realize that you're in Christ. You're not being asked to go brave the snow in your old, whatever, beat up, you know. You're, you're like riding through this in a snowplow. You're unstoppable through this. You're in Christ. And sometimes, as people who value feelings and emotions and all that, in Christ becomes a, a subjective thing, you know? Hey, Brian, are you feeling in Christ today? Well, I'm not so much feeling in him today, but yesterday I was really feeling in Christ, you know? But can I tell you that for Paul, in Christ was really not a matter of feeling. Sure, there's a mystical element that we can experience what that means and the, the intimacy of abiding and all. Yeah, yeah, sure. But when Paul refer, says in Christ, which is his favorite two-word phrase in all of his letters, He's talking about a fact more than a feeling. He's talking about a reality more than a wish. He's talking about the truth 
that when you surrender to Jesus, you're stepping inside him, that you're in him, that here is this mighty warrior clothed in righteousness and with faith and with justice, and here he is, and there you are inside him. Now that's good news. Yes, we have an enemy, but we have better news than that. We're inside the victorious warrior, Jesus Christ. I wonder as we pray tonight and and bow our heads and close the service, uh, I wonder if we would say, you know, what parts of this armor am I kind of reluctant to pick up? In what ways could we be cooperating with the Lord? You know what I mean? Maybe to say, well, um, what I really need to do is I need to remember, to, I just need to take up faith. I just need, and it's not a matter of the mantra of like, I put on the belt, you know, but, but just saying, yeah, I, I struggle with like doubts, I struggle with these thoughts, and maybe, I, maybe I need to start memorizing some scripture and speaking back the word that was spoken to us. And maybe you say, well, I, maybe I, I, I need um, to kind of put on this, this helmet and to, and to say, salvation, God, your salvation, I'm in, I'm part of your family, I've been saved, I'm in. And maybe to say, well, you, you know, I was talking with a couple of guys. We do a Bible study. We just finished up in Ephesians, you know, Wes. And, and we were asking each other this question. What, what piece of this armor do you feel like, man, we're just really not using? You know, like, like driving through a snowstorm in a four-wheel drive, but it not in four-wheel drive. You know, like what, what piece of this equipment, God's equipment itself, himself, his, his own stuff, what piece of it are we not kind of saying, well, I, I, need to take, I need to take that up, you know, and... Lord, help me to persist in believing. Lord, help me to persist in, in faithfulness. Lord, help me to put on this breastplate of righteousness to remember that, God, I've been set right. And because I've been set right, I have hope that it's all going to be set right. I'm not going to allow discouragement or weariness or resentment. I'm just, you know, yeah, I've been wronged. Yeah, you know, but, but you see it. and You'll take care of it. Is that, can we do that? pieces of this armor can we begin to take up and say, wow, I just, yes. Let's pray tonight and close. Creator God, thank you that you are not blind to the things that we face, situations, circumstances. You see every onslaught of the enemy designed against us, our families, our homes, our lives, our workplaces. But Jesus, you are the victorious warrior. Jesus, you triumphed over it all. Jesus, thank you that you're coming again. Thank you that we have this hope. Help us as your people to begin to use this equipment that you've given us to clothe ourselves in your righteousness, to clothe ourselves, take up faith, take up truth, let it hold us together, put on salvation, take up your word, speak that which has been spoken to us, your word. Make us a people that are strong, that are able to stand. This week, tomorrow, every day, this next week, help us to be people who stand. To stand against hurt. 
to stand against unforgiveness, to stand against anger, to stand against pride, to stand against all those cunning schemes of the enemy, to stand against it because we are in Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.